Good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, we've uh, got a special treat ahead of us, another episode of The Political Tipster. Uh, so our guest tonight, uh, many will be familiar with his voice, uh, a key contributor to uh, Collingwood's uh, Saturday Night Spaces. It's uh, Mr. Garrett, also known as Don't Eat Pangolins. Hi, Julian. Pleasure. How, uh, how are you doing today? Uh, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. I, I've, I've gotten some chores done and, you know, I'm taking advantage of the evening now to relax and spin some yarns about one of the more depressing political topics that one can discuss, which is Northern Ireland, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's in, it's in competition with uh, what's going on in France right now with uh, the, the a second round of two uh, not the greatest candidates, we'll say. Isn't that permanently the case in France, though? I mean, don't don't we frequently seem to be at the minute that we just end up with picking the lesser of two evils and election after election? I can't remember the last time that I've been like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably since uh, since the general Charles de Gaulle himself, it's uh, not been uh, not been <laughs> hard, pretty. Ma- hard act, hard act to follow. Yeah, though, must be said. <laughs> Very much. Um, so, a lot of our viewers will or listeners will will not be too familiar with uh, how the electoral system works in Northern Ireland. So, could you just? Uh, describe to us how it works. Sure. So Northern Ireland is broken up into you know a series of constituencies. That's probably more familiar to um, our British listeners. You know that that there are constituencies, but the way that the constituencies are run is that there is a certain number of seats allotted per constituency. Um, I think they're broken up into five seats, and. What you will do is you will put down your preferences beside a candidate and you'll list it down. So one beside your favorite, two behind your second favorite and so on and so forth until you're satisfied that there's absolutely no one else on the list that you would possibly want to give it. Um, Then after that, the first preferences are all counted. There is a, I think it's called a quota. It's done by some kind of maths formula i'm not entirely sure of the intricacies of that but basically if you hit the quota on your first preference you will take a seat and after that they run down the list until you know second preference third preference and so on until they've reached a point where they've resolved all five seats um so you know, that that can te- so you can have a situation where you know, we have two front runners are a very dominant party in an area. And then on the fifth seat or, you know, the final seat will be allotted to some smaller party or, you know, a smaller vote share and first preference votes just because they've hit the quota of the remaining preference votes. That's more or less it. It's a little complicated to explain it. It's probably easier to demonstrate um, Go in ahead. practice. Um, so like we'll just take an example here uh, i think I, I had mentioned this to you before but if we take 
Bell, let, let's just take one constituency as a from 2017 and we'll mm -hmm. run through that. So um, if we were to take East Belfast 2017, the DUP topped the first preference share with you know 38%. After that came the Alliance and then the UUP, Sinn Féin and the SDLP. So there were five seats. The DUP took two with that 38% based on their first preferences and the remaining preferences. The Alliance took two, based on the same. And then the final seat was given to the UUP, who were a distant third place on 13% of the vote. But they had obviously gotten enough to hit the quota to get mm -hmm. a seat from the constituency. No one else got anything, but that's, you know, the way the cookie crumbles. Can't all be winners. And I, I presume then that uh, ardent unionists would just Put all the unionist candidates and ardent nationalists would just put all the, the nationalist candidates correct. on their ballots. And, correct. And in each constituency, you have to remember that there might be multiple, like there will be multiple, um, there will be multiple candidates from parties running. So, you know, if, if, if Sinn Féin suspect or the DUP suspect that they could take a target seat in, you know, one of the constituencies, they will run more candidates um so that they can you know take advantage of their vote share and get more first preferences in their first second and third candidate in the hopes that they will take a seat um and you know Sinn Féin will do likewise um those are the two I'm sure everyone's probably aware that those are the two largest parties um at the moment and it was a squeaker at the last election with the DUP only coming out as largest party by a single seat so it was a close fought thing so it's going to be interesting now where it goes with this one coming up. And what's interesting as well about Northern Ireland is that uh, essentially it's constitutional law that almost everybody yes, is in the government. The it's end. what's known as a consociational system. It's unique. It also has the frequent habit of breaking down and not functioning because everyone's in power. Um, so, you know, you can't have parties that will just throw their toys out of the pram and collapse the asset <laughs> or collapse the executive. But typically the way it's worked is that the largest party will be given the role of first minister and the second largest party will be given the role of deputy minister. Um, so at the moment, so assuming this, uh, you know, you would, we would have had um, a Sinn Féin deputy minister and a DUP first minister at the last election, after the last election. That's usually how it shakes out. Now, there's queries, there, there's, there's, there's debates at how much difference it makes, um, because typically, as you said, everyone has to be in government. And as well as that, you don't normally expect that there's all that much that the first minister can do without the imprimatur of the deputy minister. I don't even think that they can, I think the joke is, is that they can't sign a letter without the other one's signature on it. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's debatable how much difference it makes other than a symbolic one. Um, but, you know, it's Northern Ireland. Symbolism has a habit of being a little bit more important here than in other parts of the Union. Uh, I presume this has caused uh, great instability in, in the country. For example, was it about three years uh, we, you had no executive? Uh... Oh, yeah. No, uh, it, it. And that is going to be one of the issues in this coming election, because you are having at the moment quite a lot of parties certainly on the nationalist side um 
and and indeed on the on the unionist side as well who are basically saying that the uh, the power sharing system that we have isn't really functioning and it's not fit for purpose so how that resolves itself is anyone's guess i would say that the softer parties would probably be looking for some kind of renegotiation of how it works um it's debatable as to whether or not the more hardline unionist element will be receptive to that they might be looking to just scrap the whole thing entirely um go back to direct rule of some sort which <laughs> probably going to be deeply ironic that the you know the, the, the if that does happen, and I have my doubts, the, the you know the direct rule will be reintroduced. If that does happen, it's going to be very interesting because Shin, the hardliners will have landed themselves in a position where the governing of the country will be done ultimately through a Boris Johnson government. <laughs> it's so uh, just... the divine comedy, it seems. As always, as always, but. Um, so I, my suspicion is that they will find a way to limp on and make it work, but the actual mechanisms of that completely unclear at this point, but you're right. We did have a period where for an extended period of time, certainly over a year where there was no functioning executive at all um, in the country. Um, now it may surprise some people to learn that the country didn't fall apart at that. So you know maybe there's a lesson to be said, a le lesson to be taken from that. <laughs> well, uh, devolution is something we'll uh, touch upon a bit later in this. Uh, but first, I'd like to talk about uh, one of the main issues uh, which are encouraging voters to come out and vote. What what is the the campaign winners uh, this election? Well, it's going to be, let's put it this way, like we're, we're still, what, I think a couple of weeks out uh, before the day. So it, it, it's unclear what's going to be the big issue that actually wins you votes on the day, because it's anyone's guess at this point. But I would say that at the moment, on the unionist side, there was some idea that the unionist major issue was going to be the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, no, I'm not sure how well that's cutting through. Um, certainly, there are there is a hardline unionist element that definitely wants to push on that and scrap it. But it seems that the DUP and unionism more broadly um, are running on a campaign of prevent Sinn Féin from being the largest party. But for the more bread and butter issues beyond the Northern Ireland Protocol and, you know, the unionism and constitutional issues, I think the biggest things that you would be looking at at the moment are going to be the cost of living. You know, we've got rising energy prices. Um, inflation is at 7%, extremely high. So when, and that hits especially hard when you're in Northern Ireland, which as it goes, is probably one of the more economically underdeveloped part of the United Kingdom. So it's less able to absorb that type of shock. So I imagine that there will be fuel costs will feature a prominent role. Um, I know for sure that that is going to be something that Sinn Féin push on and various other, the Alliance, I think, will be pushing on something similar. Um, and then beyond that, so we've got 
cost of living. And then the second thing is going to be, I'd say the major issue outside of cost of living and constitutional issues will probably be the health service. Um, I think it's currently, as it currently stands, Northern Ireland has the worst waiting times in the UK. Um, I think it's up there for worst in Europe. And there's uh, been a long running series of complaints that especially things like mental health funding in Northern Ireland are just not there. Um, so I, I imagine, and like that's probably familiar enough to our, to our to our mainland UK listeners as well, that the NHS will be featuring prominently in terms of issues that come up on the doorstep. Um, but those would be the three major ones, I think. I think it's going to be interesting to see. Um, well, so, and, and I say three, but there's four there. So it's going to be the Northern Ireland, uh, there's going to be the constitutional issues, which includes the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Good Friday Agreement and the power sharing assembly more broadly. Um, health service and cost of living the economy you know the, the, some of those are standard fare um and then the the wild card factor will be whether or not unionism pulls together enough to stop Sinn Féin becoming the largest party mm. now anyone's guess as to which of those is going to work um things can change a lot between now and then I'm sure you know weeks a long time in politics so two weeks is as well um at the moment it doesn't seem like unionist parties they're they're quite divided at the moment so a lot of the early campaigning has appeared to be unionism attacking various branches of itself um <laughs> while Sinn Féin don't interrupt and let their enemy make a mistake so that's where it seems to be at the moment and we'll see which actually wins on the day, but I would suspect if it doesn't appear to be landing, pay you you could probably pay co close attention in the couple or in the coming days. I would say that if they don't think that the NIP is landing on the doorstep, they will probably try to mollify it and change it to something else. And I think for the DUP, the, their major push is going to be if you don't for, vote for us, Sinn Fein could be the largest party. <laughs> Yeah, uh, interesting. Uh, you, you pretty much got spot on. Uh, the the biggest concerns for voters. Uh, I was looking at a poll. Uh, so cost of living first, healthcare, the economy, uh, education fourth actually, and then uh, fifth is the union and the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. And looking at, I'd be interested. I would be interested. I, would, I you know, I know education comes up there. I, I would love to have a deeper dive of what. You know, because whenever people pick their top, um, you know, their top, what's the word, issues, you always wonder what they mean when they say, like, for instance, on the issues at the moment, if you look at, there's actually a pretty good rundown of this on the BBC, both the Sinn Féin and the DUP have listed on their, um, on their policies and they're on the issues that they want to prevent there being a general amnesty for crimes committed during the troubles both parties say that but i guarantee you if you ask them what they mean by that they mean entirely different things i see i see uh but i was looking at uh, Sinn Féin's uh, campaign and uh, it looks like I, I draw a few parallels to uh, marie le pen in uh, in france uh because uh, they sort of put their sort of 
we'll say their most radical issues. So for, for Marine Le Pen, it was uh, anti-Islam for Sinn Féin. It's the United Ireland. They seem to have put it on a back burner and they've, they've presented themselves as the, the candidate of the, the cost of living. And uh, in France, actually, uh, this really paid off for Le Pen because um, before the Ukraine invasion, uh, Zemmour was was actually above her in a couple of polls because the the debate was dominated by cultural issues, and actually the Ukraine invasion completely changed that, and uh, the cost of living really has become the the most important issue in in the country. Mm. I I think you know it's always. I, I, Sinn Féin, I think, are playing a very canny game here, which is, you know, they're a much slicker party than they have been in previous iterations. But I would say that the like, if 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 you consider what we've had in the last couple of years, you know, we've we've had the ongoing crisis that was the B word, um, <laughs> which you know now has resolved itself at least partially uh, we've had the pandemic and now you've got the ukrainian crisis so i think Sinn Féin are probably trying to play that one very mum um you have to imagine that it might be something that they get louder about if they do become the largest party but i oh, yeah. can't imagine them campaigning on it um simply because i don't think there's much appetite for further turbulence um further chaos in inverted commas so i suspect that Sinn Féin will probably and they have been backing off on the push for a for a border poll um i mean obviously that's very near and dear to their heart um they definitely would push for it if they thought that they could and win on it but i think primarily their goal now is to win that largest party status because there is for them like I said, the symbols matter a lot in Northern Ireland, probably more so than anywhere else in the UK. And a nationalist party being the number one party would prop would be an un I, I, it would be like the sky is falling. I would say for certain <laughs> segments of the unionist population, and you know that's a very important symbol. Um, so that's I think their aim right now. They're going to run on bread and butter issues win hope for them hopefully win enough seats to be the largest party and then who knows where they take that largest party uh status i would say that there's if they did win you know a convincingly like if they won by one or two seats um or they won by more than that i don't know what the prospect of that is but if they beat the dup you have to imagine that they would start making more noises about border poll in the not too distant future and i suspect that given that Sinn Féin is now ostensibly the opposition the major opposition party in the republic of ireland as well you could probably expect that call to come mm. from both sides of the border um from Sinn Féin's from Sinn Féin anyway um so that that, that would be what i would think would be Sinn Féin strategy. Sinn Féin aren't going to play for the border poll. I don't think that they need to give that red meat in order to win. Um, they just need to hold to what they've got and win one or two more seats and then hope for, and then what they'd be hoping for would be that unionist divisions will cause the DUP to lose out seats to either their more moderate rivals in the UUP or their more uh, hardline 
they're, they're more hardline votes to, I think it's the unionist voice or the TUV. Yeah. Um, so th th that would be what Sinn Féin is hoping for. They're hoping not to lose this particular race to either SDLP taking their vote share or just in general losing their vote to the alliance, you know, unaligned voters or indeed losing on the kind of, you know, the left wing policies in certain parts of Belfast to people before profit. So that, that, that would be what I would say is their plan. At the moment, it's very hard to see. There was talks. I know there was plans, at least, um, of uh, unionism, like a, a combined unionism vote, um, which didn't really go anywhere, seems. And it looks like the UUP have more or less left it. Um, but you had, you, you had wild scenes, I think. You had, the, you had, you had Jim Allister, the TUV coming on to talk about how terrible the DUP was <laughs> and how much they were a pet, how they, how they, and talking about how the UUP leader is a traitor, like while ostensibly trying to share the same stage with them. So I, at the moment, I, I don't know what game, or uh, it, it, you'd be hard to define, or you'd be hard to divine a campaigning strategy from the DUP at the mm. moment. It doesn't seem to be whatever they're doing at the moment it doesn't appear to be working so we'll see how it goes um it's in the nature that they will probably lose i mean they're they very much are playing to hold what they've got um you can even tell by the amount of candidates that they're fielding Sinn Féin are running you know 34 or something like that i think they're, they're running over 34 for 27 seats and their hope I imagine will be to hold all of those seats and pick up one or two more elsewhere mm. uh, the DUP hold 28 at the moment and are running 30 so that you can tell <laughs> that that's defense that's defensive at this stage they're trying to hold to everything that they've got and uh, re returning to the the cost of living um, so I was, I was looking at uh, government reports which is uh, talking about spending in Northern Ireland and uh, during the pandemic, uh, there, there was a huge, the biggest increase of all the UK nations in, in spending, uh, especially on family and children. Uh, so whilst uh, Northern Ireland had uh, an increase of around £384 uh, per head, uh, the UK average was only about 19 uh, Do you think Northern Ireland has been able to weather the storm? Or is it going to face uh, very difficult times? And uh... well, look, I think you have to. What you have to understand about Northern Ireland is that Northern Ireland is, in general, not a wealthy part of the United Kingdom. Anyway, um, quite a lot of like I don't think that they've they don't typically run in a budget surplus. Anyway. Um, quite a large proportion of the Northern Irish economy is based in the civil service. Um, so, but the, I, I suppose if you're, if you're not doing particularly well, how far do you have to fall? Um, I would say that there's probably less of a strong economy to absorb the impact of any shock in Northern Ireland. But I, I would say that they're not going to be alone in the cost of living crisis, but it's definitely it's definitely cutting through, I would say, especially the energy cost at the moment. I, I don't think that there's a constituent part of the United Kingdom that isn't feeling that as a major issue at the moment.
but in Northern Ireland, I'd say that it is certainly um, one thing that I would think would be a major thing um, on the doorstep or for for voters. It's, it's definitely going to be in people's minds as they get a vote. Um, who do they think is going to be best to get get everyone out of this inflationary crisis, or at least who's going to have the best policies for dealing with it? Um, but I don't know if I answered your question. Will Art and Will Northern Ireland be able to weather it? I mean, it's 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 an open question as to whether any government or any country is going to be particularly good at weathering the coming inflationary cycle. Um, is anyone's well, guess at this um, point? What are the positions of well, well, of Sinn Fein and and the DUP? What what are their? Do they have so a strong strategy for? Um, no, I believe that I'm just going to get up some of the on the issues from the um, from the BBC, because it's actually a pretty good rundown for anyone who wants to follow it. But from what I can remember off the top of my head, um, the DUP will be looking at. Uh, so if we go to the cost of living, it's going to be. Uh, yeah, OK, we've got it's going to be an energy payment to support families from the DUP, windfall tax on energy firms, 30 hours of childcare. Now, Sinn Féin are going with a different route of just giving direct payments. They're going to give 230 quid per household to help with cost of living pressures, business rates holiday and additional allocations for the discretionary support fund and emergency fuel payment scheme. So that's. They're not too dissimilar there, but it looks like Sinn Féin is going to go with the direct cash route and the DUP are going to be focusing on free childcare and energy support payments, whereas the Sinn Féin are going to be upping the spending and looking for some kind of rates uh, reduction. So how well the, either of those will work, I don't know. We'll see. I would say that people probably would like the concrete number more than the, uh, you know, the increase in payment to assist. Of course, but uh, I, I'm just wondering if that uh, £230 is going to uh, be uh, sort of changed with inflation because uh, in a couple of weeks that will be worth uh, nothing uh, with the way uh, inflation <laughs> is increasing. You're probably not wrong there. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what the other parties do because you imagine that at the moment it's the smaller parties that are going to be making the uh, really pushing on the kind of cost of living issues and it looks like i'm looking at the sdlp now they're passing emergency legislation for 300 million to help people with rising costs there's going to be a 200 quid payment and an additional 100 quid emergency fuel payment scheme and the UUP are going to establish a task force. I don't know that that one's going to really cut through. Uh, just before we move away from uh, policies, I just wanted to touch upon one thing, uh, which is quite close to my heart, is the uh, uh, grammar school system in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. Uh, so the, as you said before, we, we, we're not too sure why people are saying that education is their fourth priority, but uh, one thing uh, which has, which I've always found disappointing is that uh, Theresa May a few years ago was promising to build new grammar schools and, and nothing as, as usual of the uh, Conservative parties has happened since then. So 
Yeah. They always talk a good game. Um, what's going to be interesting is, is that I think there is actually a nationalist or, you know, it's, it's very hard to define because at the moment, national, all the nationalist parties are what you would call, they're, they're all liberal parties. And I mean that there is in that, that they're all left-wing parties. Um, mm -hmm. With the exception of one minor party called Aonpu, who are Sinn Féin splitter party, who split with Sinn Féin over the issue oh, of yes. abortion. So, but at the moment, it seems like there is a nationalist unionist split on the grammar schools, because it looks like both Sinn Féin and the SDLP and Alliance are all pushing for an end to academic selection. So I imagine that's the direct attack at the grammar school system in Northern Ireland from them. Um, we'll see if that really does them any favors or because if, if people are really vexed about the end of, or about academic selection in Northern Ireland, then they will back, you know, either the Alliance or one of the nationalist parties. But if they're actually worried about keeping that then that could actually be a saving grace for the unionist side but um with regards to theresa may tories make this promise every five years never do anything with it um i i don't think that they they have any idea of how they would do it if they wanted to um because are they really going to push to are they really going to pass in legislation for a return to the 11 plus or are they really going to push for a return to the pre comprehensive school system um my answer is probably not um I, I think it's deeply sad but i think that's probably the case um I, I i hope that northern ireland manages to keep it but um i would suspect that there will be a larger and larger push to end academic selection and academically selective mm -hmm. schools so one of the other interesting things is that there is a bit of a uh, how would you put it? Religious divide, to put it mildly, as to which grammar school you attend. <clears throat> so, for instance, mine was a Catholic grammar school, and there ha there are also Protestant grammar schools as well. Um, it looks like the Alliance are pushing for more integrated education, which, when it comes to Northern Ireland, is meaning that you know it's non-sectarian or it's non-religious. So secular. We'll see if. Yeah, secular would be more appropriate, I suppose. Lassite, um, <laughs> or is that is it lassite? But laicite, laicite. There we go. <laughs> but so it's going to be interesting to see which of those cuts through. If a, if education is indeed a large issue, it would be interesting to see what they mean. But I suppose we'll figure that out um, with regards to who actually takes the most votes, because at the moment the SDLP. The Alliance and Sinn Féin are all running on an anti-academic selection, whereas the DUP and the UUP, I don't believe are. I'm not sure of the UUP off the top of my head, but I know the DUP aren't running on getting rid of it. Um, I think uh, I think a lot of these left-wing parties need to read uh, the Guernsey Dixon uh, report um, because in 1953, 64% uh, of those who went to a grammar school we're from a working class background. And today with fewer grammar schools, we've just had a widened gap between uh, class because uh, yep. all, of the, all of the middle class uh, students, uh, their parents will just pay for private school. Whereas uh, it, it, it ends class... up being it, it ends up being a lot it ends up being a postcode based lottery system. And you and I've I I, I always noticed that the lar the loudest proponents 
of comprehensive education in the UK. I'm thinking off the top of my head of people like Tony Blair. They always manage to find a way to get into a school district that's for a very good school for their kids. They'll just buy the houses there or find some way to get in, um, which I think is quite gross. I think people should pay more attention to that and uh, punish hypocrites on it. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, you know? <laughs> well, it was uh, Peter Hitchens in his abolition of Britain. He, he pointed out that... Uh... Peter, Ma Peter Mandelson once said that uh, he'd be ashamed if his child went to a grammar school or something. But the, the comprehensive school which he sent his uh, kid to, uh, it was in one of the richest London boroughs. Uh, so basically, it becomes a selective school based on wealth because yeah. uh, it's a, the catchment area to enter into this school is in a very wealthy area where we're the poorer students will not be able to afford to live. So it, it becomes a selective school de facto, really. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know why you would... Look, no education system is going to be perfect, but I would say that Northern Ireland at the moment punches above its weight um, educationally. I don't know why you would... You know, why spit in your luck? Um, that would be my opinion on it anyway. But I think we're getting a bit off topic, but <laughs> I, I, I personally would not um favor an end to academic selection in northern Ireland. so hopefully long may it last uh, so let's now talk about uh the reason why this election happened in the first place and it was the dup leader resigned over the northern Ireland protocol so it seems as if whatever happens with this protocol half the country isn't going to be happy or, or the the even the nationalists or the unionists won't be happy. No. So is there a way of resolving this, firstly, without having to change the Good Friday Agreement? Um, and if not, um, is it workable? Is it workable? Okay, well, uh, there's an open argument that I would say, uh, just to take a couple of points, there's an open argument to be made um, as to whether or not the Northern Ireland Protocol is consistent with the Good Friday Agreement, because technically it is a constitutional change to Northern Ireland, which by the Good Friday Agreement can only be done via a referendum. Now, I know that that is the argument that was made by um, some, certainly by Lord Trimble, I believe, has made that argument. But with regards to the NIP, I think it's probably true to say that for the nationalist side, obviously they want closer relations with the Republic of Ireland for reasons that I'm sure are totally obvious. Um, and with the unionist side, for them, this is in fact, uh, this strikes the very, the, to the very heart of the constitutional issue that they care about. You know, there is now a tariff and goods border between themselves and mainland UK. Um, with uh, sausage gates. As well. Sausage gate. There was issues with medicine imports. Those have been resolved. I mean, the best thing to do, I imagine, and like how to resolve it. I mean, we've been asking that question for now five or six years. Um, how to resolve the Northern Irish question of Brexit? Um, they've got to do something. Um, whether that means an abrogation or a renegotiation of the NIP. I don't know. And the question is, is if you do nothing, what happens with 
the unionist side is there louder and louder agitation on their side if you do nothing or if you don't abrogate or if you don't resolve what they perceive to be a constitutional issue and then if you abrogate it and against what might be the wishes of most of the nationalist community do you end up with some pushback from them um as with every issue of northern irish politics i think it's always an open question as to whether or not it's ever soluble um which is why it's usually if things aren't breaking it's usually a good thing to leave them alone in northern ireland um <laughs> the good friday agreement's an interesting one um not least of which because of that objection lord trimble made to the nip on its basis but the good friday agreement and the power sharing assembly i think that there is open talks from the nationalist side that the power sharing isn't working um not least of which because the government tends to collapse when one or the other side at this point historically it's usually been the dup throw their, throws the toys out of the pram and there's no government usually resolves into periods of negotiation and renegotiation but for long extended periods of time northern ireland can have a non-functioning government um the Sinn fein certainly i think want to discuss how this is going to work going forward and i think the nationalists and the alliance also want to discuss this they want to renegotiate how it works um and i think from the hardline unionist perspective i think there's going to be uh, it's it's interesting because the three major paramilitary groups of the unionist uh or the loyalist side have re reneged their support for the good friday agreement and i think i've heard talk that the orange order might have done so as well so how do you keep an agreement going when the power sharing assembly and the part in the devolution isn't working and there's different ideas on how you resolve that between the hardline unionists and the hardline nationalists the nationalists obviously would love a border poll and a, re and a unified ireland and it looks like the hardline unionist position would be to scrap the the devolved assembly and go to direct rule um so how you square that circle is anyone's guess i suspect that the dup and the dup and the uup will try to make some arrangement to keep this going um because it's historically from their perspective they've had a lot of promises from london that typically end up getting reneged on um mm. i think we can all agree that the dup the, i mean the dup functionally propped up theresa may's government for you know a couple of years it would have collapsed long without much much faster without them um and they did so on the basis that there would be an all UK Brexit. And that functional that that ultimately did not come to pass. So and, how um, much trust? Sorry, go on. From the bottom of your heart, uh, do you believe that Boris Johnson tried his best to resolve this question? Or do you think he just doesn't care about uh, the Union and uh, Northern Ireland? I don't know what's in his mind. Um, I, I have my, I have my doubts that much. I, I, I have long suspected that there's at least a part of London that would love to see Northern Ireland go because Northern Ireland has been a consistent problem for Westminster. Mm. Um, now, with a. a I know there are many committed unionists in the Conservative Party. It is a Conservative and Unionist Party. 
Now, how well he tried to resolve it? Well, I have heard telling that the problem isn't so much the agreement itself, it's the divided interpretation between the EU and the UK side. The EU have interpreted this from a very maximalist point of view, and the UK obviously did not. Um, I believe they tried to get something workable, but it's very hard to know because quite a lot of the backroom wheeling and dealing usually only comes out when someone is briefing against someone else. Um, Theresa May, I think, did at least try to speak to the problem by making the UK leave all under the one arrangement. And ultimately, you know, the DUP didn't support that deal either. Um, so... But they later did, said that uh, it was a better deal than uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah. And from their perspective, it is because Theresa May's deal was at least an all UK approach. Um, I didn't particularly like it, um, as I'm sure many listeners um, will have had the same opinion. But there's no question that Northern Ireland and th there has been a change into the constitutional and good status of Northern Ireland as a result of the agreement. Mm. Um, I think it's very much speaking to, like if, if, if the Conservative Party going forward want to be the party of the union and you know the constitutional or the protection of the constitutional integrity of the country, I think it's gonna be very hard for them to hold up the Northern Ireland protocol um, as a success in that regard. Mm. Um, now, whether or not they could have done any better, I don't know. Um, it's very hard to know given that by the time they took over the negotiations, it was several years of negotiations already underway. Um, if I had to, from the bottom of my heart, my suspicion is that they wanted to resolve it in some way that they could consider more electorally favorable. And let's be honest here, neither Labour nor the Conservatives run any candidates in Northern Ireland. And for the most part, aren't going to be changed either way by grumblings in Northern Ireland. Mm. So whether they cared or not, I think they probably cared, but did they care enough to really push for the nuclear option there? Probably not. I'd, uh, I'd be very, very interested to know what would actually happen if uh, we, we were to sort of scrap the Northern Ireland protocol and sort of ignore the, the EU because um, we have a commercial deficit of the last time I checked, it was over 200 million uh, or 200 billion, sorry, with the, with the EU, mm -hmm. uh, which means if they were to start, so let's say we, we, we scrap the Northern Ireland protocol and we ignore the hard border, uh, we, we just carry on as normal. If they were to place economic sanctions on us and start an economic war, they would be shooting themselves in the foot because if we start putting tariffs on German cars, uh, things like that, the, the EU would suffer more. So I, what, 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 why are we really playing to the EU's game when arguably we have the upper hand in these negotiations? Well, the, I suppose the going theory, especially among the more free trading parts of the, or the Conservative Party would be that no one wins a trade war. Um, you know, there's, it, it would be pain in both directions. And whether or not, even if we unilaterally decided there would be no hard border in Northern Ireland, whether or not the EU would not insist on something that would be 
something resembling a harder border. It's 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 hard to know. Um, I don't think that the government. I think the last person who was really deeply thinking about this in the government was um, Lord Frost, and he is now no longer serving in the government. So, does Boris Johnson have the stomach? to do it and does he have the command of his brief enough that he could manage this successfully if he did it heart of hearts i'd say the answer is probably not um but they like we have to remember that northern ireland now there is friction between it and the mainland uk and businesses react to that very quickly um so if you don't do something soon it may end up that you know what was the largest trade partner for Northern Ireland, which was the UK, you know, obviously as its constituent part of the UK, um, you know, so obviously domestic trade is going to be higher on that basis. But if businesses, et cetera, retool sufficiently to deal with the current frictions, it might be difficult to resolve. I think the, the clock is actually ticking here. Mm. Um, and I don't know that I would be confident of the the talent, for lack of a better word, in the front bench Tories to actually manage what would be a very nettlesome issue. Um, depresses me to talk about it, but if it, it would be something that you would have to consistently think about. You have to think about what the maximal, or what is the maximum damage that the EU could do, because you have to prepare for them playing the hardest ball so you have to be ready to react or to counteract that and my suspicion is that the uk won't do it unless it's confident mm. that it would have washington support in doing it and at the moment i don't think that they can no. rely on that from from joe biden and the democratic party i i i think without washington's backing they aren't going to abrogate it um they might push for what you would call differential interpretations or, you know, and then, you know, they might just wait for the EU to take them to court being like, well, we don't interpret it that way. And then operate as if they interpret it their own way and then just wait for whatever they, because, and let's be very clear here. Like there's, there's much talk about how the UK is acting in bad faith here, but the people who actually threatened to first invoke the, um, the abrogation of the Northern Ireland protocol or the EU with regards to vaccines, yeah. So I, I, I don't have very much faith in either side acting on their best behavior or acting in the interest of Northern Ireland. What I would suspect is, is that the UK will not pull that trigger, um, not least of which because I don't think it has the patience, the, the current government has the patience or the grasp of the brief to deal with what would happen as a result of doing it. Um, that's, that, that's my two cents anyway. And this election is, is rather important for this question as well, because uh, as Article 18 states, there'll be a vote in 2024 about whether to continue the protocol. So um, if the nationalists manage to get a, a majority in yep. uh, the parliament this time, it, it's quite likely that the Northern Ireland protocol will be there to stay. Yes. So the D or sorry, the, so the unionists are going to, if they want to shut that down, which it appears that all the unionist parties do, and they haven't had a majority, they, they don't have a majority currently, so they would be hoping to pick up seats in order to scrap the, the NIP. Um, because I think universally, I think Sinn Féin 
the SDLP and the Alliance Party will all vote to keep it. So they are going to have to, they're going to have to think quite closely about what they do if they don't win that. Because um, I'm just looking at it on the issues now. So the DUP wants to scrap the protocol and replace it. The UUP wants to oppo opposes the protocol and wants to find common sense alternatives. The SDLP keep the protocol, Sinn Féin maximize the protocol for access to EU and British markets. So what are the, so at, at the moment it, it does appear that like you're correct if the nationalists return a majority or you know even if there's not enough to even if there's nationalist plus alliance um then the northern ireland protocol will stay um and once it's voted in it's going to be politically impossible for westminster to get rid of it so it, it, this is actually quite an important election on that perspective for unionists if they don't return the seats to oppose it then it stays and it stays forever uh so just to sort of finish off in a sense, uh, opening up quite a, an open question, but uh, in your opinion, is a United Ireland inevitable or is there a way we can uh, save the union? Nothing's inevitable. Um, I think we have to understand that the, North, the, the Good Friday Agreement has in mind when it was like there is an idea that there will be a unified Ireland within that agreement. Um, it says that the uh, um, I, I'm try this is not a verbatim quote by the way. I don't have the Good Friday Agreement committed to memory, but it that, that there will be a, that the under the Northern Ireland Secretary's discretion there can be a vote on the border and a vote to join rejoin Ireland or the you know vote for Northern Ireland to join the Republic of Ireland will be honoured by the UK government. Now, what it doesn't say in there is that a vote for no, not to rejoin the Republic of Ireland, will settle the issue. So the, is it inevitable that Northern Ireland rejoins the Republic? I actually don't think so. I think there's actually not, and, and I say so, not least of which because it's going to be, if people thought that, people thought Brexit was thorny, they have no idea what this would be like. Uh, I think that I saw a legal expert from um, Trinity College Dublin, one of the, from the law school, suggest that it would need something like five to seven implementing referenda in the Republic of Ireland if Northern Ireland voted to leave the UK, um, which any number of those could fail. Um, nor... Uh, and the current polling, it looks like there isn't a majority to leave the UK. Now, how would you save the UK? The best way to stop people from wanting to leave the UK would be to actually increase the prosperity of Northern Ireland, um, which at the moment is actually the lagging part of the island compared well, to the um, public. Just a few sort of statistics to throw at you. So, uh... 25, well, almost 26% of Northern Irish jobs are in the UK public sector. Uh, yep. You've got uh, total spending in Ireland on social security is higher than the UK average on healthcare as well. 
uh, of yep. police service for, for obvious reasons. Is throwing money at the issue really working or is there something no, more I, that I, we need to do? When I say prosperity, I think what I mean is, is that I actually think that there needs to be some kind of structural overhaul of the Northern Irish economy. I think we don't have much of a burgeoning uh, private sector. Um, quite a lot of this is being dealt with at, you know, like the, the civil servant level, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you have to remember that at the moment between North and South, there's a huge difference between um, corporate tax rates if you domicile yourself in as a, as a corporate in the South or the North. Equalizing that would do something to assist with that. Um, other than that, I think if you actually push to get the maximal benefits of things like free ports and stuff like that, like if you actually make Northern Ireland richer, and I mean that richer, you know, like as in like it, it actually feels to the random person on the ground or the, you know, the average citizen that they are feeling the good effects of um, the union, then it will be saved. Um, otherwise, I think that, and the problem that we have, because you said the social security spending, et cetera, et cetera, that is what I think is actually preventing. I, I would think if you polled 19 to 29 year olds, I would say that you would probably have a majority to leave the UK. Um, However, there is an older generation that is very used to things like the NHS, um, things like the social care, the, the public pensions, and there are serious doubts in their mind about what the effect would be if they rejoined the Republic of Ireland. But I think in order for you to make any effect on, in order to stop this long term, I don't think short of actually getting rid of the Good Friday Agreement, you can never overrule the possibility, right? And I don't think that there's the appetite to do that either in Northern Ireland or in the UK or in the Republic of Ireland. Um, but if you wanted to prevent the possibility of a vote going against remaining in the union, um, then I think that you, should, you would need to really kind of make it feel like it is an attractive place to be for younger people, like from an economic perspective, you know, but I, I think that's true of quite a lot of the UK. The problem is, is that at the moment, there are two constituent parts of the UK that could theoretically return parties. Well, one already has returned party or the, the largest party is wanting to leave the UK yeah. and Northern Ireland could um, very soon do the same. Um, how you fix that issue, I don't know. But something's got to be done. And I do wonder if a very England-dominated Tory party is thinking about this closely enough. Um, well, funny you should say that, because uh, we had uh, Boris Johnson's Project Love, uh, where <laughs> he, he wanted to sort of, similar to what the EU do uh, when they sort of uh, lend you money to, to, to build infrastructure, and then they put the EU flag on you. He wanted to do the same, but with the the uk flag and he actually wanted yeah. to bypass devolved government which i i think is i don't think that's a terrible good, idea i think it's a good idea on paper um whether the tories the one will I did, do it again is i i have a certain fondness for one of the more zany plans 
which was <laughs> namely the bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland. Uh, yeah. I thought that was a like if you could have pulled that off, I thought it would have been fabulous. Like the idea that you would be able to drive from Northern Ireland to the mainland UK, I just think that's fantastic. It's, it's just for re for reasons of for whatever reason they've abandoned that plan but i think that 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 i think that's something they should actually pursue you know i i think that would be a super plan um you know and that's a very like i was saying to you before northern ireland is very much about symbols like it, 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 symbolism does play a huge role in northern mm. ireland i think that that would have been a very potent symbol for the union and um do you feel as if uh devolution has been uh success uh and because i remember there was a labor mp i can't remember who it was in the 1990s who said that um devolution is a one-way uh one-way road to uh, separatism um do you feel I as i think if, that you agree i think that i well i mean i actually do agree with that i mean devolution has been a complete disaster and everywhere it's been tried um Scotland has now more or less become a separate um, entity in and of itself with its own separate foreign policy, despite the fact that it has no role in having a foreign policy. Um, with Northern Ireland, the issue was just complicated by the fact that direct rule was incredibly unpopular and that the previous Stormont government was, how would you say, incredibly... I think people have to understand an awful lot of nationalist sentiment isn't based on airy fairy nonsense. It was based on what was a very, very unfair system um, in Stormont. Um, it was heavily gerrymandered. There was restrictions on government jobs. There's restrictions on who could get access to social housing. Um, who could uh, there was restrictions on property purchasing in many ways there and what's more there was given that the voting system was tied to property ownership there was a good there was a good period of time when the catholic side of northern ireland was locked out of voting mm. whatsoever um so the devolved government i i think it's been a complete mess um i i I mean, it's it, it's hard to really get, give it anything other than a low grade. Um, it frequently fails to function. It seems to be obsessed with what I would consider, to be honest, fringe issues like the Irish Language Act. I I just don't. I think that that's very navel gazely, or sorry, navel gazely, navel gazing. I think that's that's that's. I think it's it's. I I don't think it matters. Um, and it frequently breaks. Um, if you had a car that functioned as often as the Northern Irish government does, would you consider it a good car? Would you get a different one? Um, the question is, can you actually go back to a direct rule system? Mm. Um, feels like uh, Pandora's box has been opened to me. Yeah, I, I think that, like you say, the, that box has already been opened. I think, and I think that the DUP will not pursue something that will cause that. Um, mostly because I think that they feel that they are safer when it is not being decided by London. And I think that there's good historical reasons for them thinking that. Um, would, would they really go back to a direct rule here? 
no, I, I think ultimately the DUP and the UUP and Sinn Féin will find a way to make it work. Hmm. Um, is that what what that means in the in the future is difficult to tell. Um, I think if you could have gone back in time and never had, um, you know, a, a very uh, if if you never had a Stormont government, like if you could go back to you know if you go back go back to the twenties, if you could go back in time. I think it would have behooved the UK to never allow such an entity to exist, um, and it should have all been done by a direct rule. The fact, that ultimately, the fact that it wasn't done is impossible to fix. It can't be changed. What's past is past. But at the moment, I think that they're going to make the devolved government limp on. Um, but they're going to have to figure out something to make it more functional. Or I, I, I can't see how I, I you know. To, to quote, I think you know, we can't go on like this. Like, it, it just can't go on like this. It's just, it's just not, it's not functional. I, I, I don't think that you can have, I don't think you can satisfactorily say to the people in Northern Ireland that your government hasn't been running for several years, but that's fine. We're going to keep this as is. I just don't think that that works. I think uh, I'll end this segment with a, a fantastic quote from the, the spectator, which was... Uh, if you want to save the union, ignore Gordon Brown. Huh. Huh. Excellent. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. You know, I, I, on that on that topic anyway, that's that's a really good quote. Uh, Wish so I thought of it. <laughs> just to uh, finish off, let's uh, crunch some numbers and, and have some predictions. So I was, I was looking carefully and so... Sinn Féin are about uh, six or seven points ahead in, in the polls, I believe. Yep. Um, yes. But I, I was looking at it uh, at each constituency, and more often than not, from the 2017 result, they seem to be the more vulnerable party because they seem to win in bulk. So they, they win three or four seats mm -hmm. in some places, which means they normally have their third seat as they won by a couple hundred votes and it seems to be quite vulnerable, not necessarily to the DUP, but parties like Alliance or the smaller parties like the Profit Before I think, People. I think that's actually going to be in the minds of Sinn Féin in the run-up to this election, that they are in a good... like If you were picking any party that you would like to be in this election in terms of winning, you would be Sinn. You would pick. You you would want to be Sinn Fein, because ultimately they do have a point lead. Um, unionism is kind of fractured and divided between three parties, which could allow you to sneak in. So what will be in the minds of Sinn Fein as they go forward is that they have to prevent vote leakage to the SDLP and the Alliance Party. Um, no, they're running more candidates. I think, like I said, than any other party, they're running thirty four. Um, so I guess maybe they're hoping for some kind of situation where the nationalist community decides we'll stick two fingers up to what's happened before and return the Sinn Féin as the largest party for the first time ever. Um, if I was looking for upsets, though, I think you should watch some of the constituencies um you know for instance belfast east i think you know there, there's a potential that the alliance actually take the lead vote share there um 
my own constituency of Mid Ulster is, funnily enough, the only one where they expect no change. It's going to be zero difference between uh, any, which is the only one. Um, but you're right. There, there is there. The Sinn Fein are vulnerable in certain other core constituencies. Um, like, for instance, I'm I'm just looking. Like RT's got a good kind of rundown of this. Belfast well, North. There is Belfast North. There is a potential for Sinn Fein to lose a seat to mm. the Alliance Party, which would be, and you know that that's got to be in Sinn Fein's mind going into this election. It has to hold everything, or it has to hold as much as possible, yeah. and potentially pick up one or two more seats. <clears throat> so, the the potential for an upset, it's not impossible. Um, but I think, you know, if, if, if we're looking constituency by constituency, and in fact, maybe we'll just do that really quickly. West Tyrone, you're probably going to be wanting to watch to see if the SDLP can take a seat from Sinn Féin. Um, not impossible. Um, the upper ban, that's where the, that's kind of the UUP kind of, the UUP, I think the UUP leader is running there. So the question is, is does the infighting in, in, in unionism at the moment cause someone to sneak up the middle? Um, does the UUP have one of their seats there? Um, but you could imagine a situation where on a really terrible day for the UUP that someone like the SDLP could you know, mm. sneak a seat out of them. Um, we go to North Antrim, what are we looking at? Yeah, so the, the North Antrim will be a place that I think everyone should be looking at closely because this is where the TUV leader is going to be running. And this is formerly North Antrim, like, is serious, serious DUP heartland. Like, this is where Ian Paisley ran. So it's going to, if what happens if they take the top spot from the TUP in their heartland? I mean, it, it could happen. But in the in the previous election, all seats were decided on the on the seventh count. So it, it's it's a, it's a, it's going to be a it's going to be a contested <laughs> one. The other one to watch is Strangford, um, and the reason for Strangford is is that that no nationalist has ever taken a seat in Strangford, um, and it looks like there's an expectation among the SDLP that they might be able to squeak a fifth spot. But that's going to be contingent on them performing quite well and polling better than Alliance in that instance. Um, I don't know how plausible that is, um, but those would be the ones I think would be the major ones to watch. I'd say mm. that Strangford and North Antrim are going to be the more inter most interesting of the seats, um, simply because, like I said, Strangford's never had a nationalist. As, as, a, as a returned um, and it could happen and does the infighting in unionism at the moment mean that the TUV can top the DUP in their former heartland now th those are really open questions but those would be the ones I would be looking out for as the most interesting and uh, um, just to add one more from myself is, uh, is West Belfast which uh, Sinn Féin has four seats, which is uh, the most, I think, yep. dominated seat and uh, constituency. But I think the SDLP is running very popular candidate who, who runs a food bank 
in the constituency yep. and the DUP are also uh, running a, a very popular, uh, he was a former mayor as well, uh, who, who's a popular candidate. So those, those two are looking to steal that uh, fourth Sinn Féin yes. seat, which they won by about a hundred, yeah, a couple hundred maybe, very vulnerable. Yeah, I would say that that is a very vulnerable seat, and not least of which, you, you, you never know how people before profit are going to do, because the, 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 guy, the, the guy that holds this seat for people before profit, a friend of mine was saying, who is West Belfast, and said, this guy's relentless on campaign, like relentless <laughs> on campaign. Like as in, he knocked, I think, it may be an exaggeration to say he knocked on every door in West Belfast, <laughs> but he was certainly doing his level best to do so. To expect him to really put boots on the ground like he will work <laughs> extremely hard not to hold that seat and you know with the sdlp and the dup both running big name candidates yeah that that could be a vulnerable seat for Sinn fein um and that would really really harm their chances of winning the top spot if they did you know like i said Sinn fein have to hold plus the dup have to hold and like that's the win condition and i think <laughs> depending on the upsets from the smaller party you could see a situation where we end up with almost no change or both the dup or the dup squeaking back in or Sinn Féin squeaking into the top spot by a pure fluke from one of the smaller mm. parties and one of the more contested seats <laughs> so just to just to cap off what what would be your uh the little tips for uh, for this election well if i was to guess i actually feel like that you know i don't want to clown myself with predictions but my feeling is that at the moment the unionist vote is so split between three different parties that Sinn Féin might squeak this one um i feel like they might nudge into the lead here um you never know um but that would be my gut instinct as to what is going to happen i would say that if i was looking at strangford is even in the sdlp gonna take a seat there it really i i don't think so um the TUV taking over the DUP in terms of vote percentage there in that heartland. I would say that that's possible. Um, but, you know, if I was to put my finger on the election, I think <laughs> it's going to be Sinn Féin ahead by one or two seats. Um, okay. that, that, that's my guess. Um, I think I've got good reasons for that guess, not least of which Sinn Féin is polling. If not a plurality, they're polling ahead by seven points. They're also playing the less crap campaign. Um, and I, I do mean that. I, it's, it's, they're, they're playing a very clever game. Um, and they, they are quite good at playing these clever games on occasion. Um, they did it in the most recent Irish election and very nearly topped the poll. Um, had they run more candidates, they would have been the largest party in the Republic of Ireland. Um, this time, it looks like they're shooting for the fences, and I think that they've got good reason to do so. Um, given the seven-point advantage, you have to fancy that they will squeak this by one mm -hmm. or two. Now, we'll see. 
because if the DUP's tactics or, you know, if unionism itself or like if unionists decide we have to kind of like pick our battles here to keep Sinn Féin out or keep a nationalist majority out or maybe we'll hold our nose and vote to the DUP despite the fact that they've been riven within fighting for quite a while. We'll see how well that works. My suspicion is that Sinn Féin will probably be the largest party in two weeks, but we'll see. Well, actually, in the, in the last poll, I, I, did, I do believe that uh, the DUP went up two points and the TUV went down three points. So it could sort of suggest that uh, a few unionists are, are fearing uh, Sinn Féin now and maybe creeping back towards uh, the DUP. That's that's going to be ultimately, I think, what decides this election, whether yeah. or not unionists rally behind the DUP and whether or not Sinn Féin can keep their nose clean enough for people to not think that they're going to ring a, or bring a border pill, or at least they're not going to be pushing for it as the number one concern. As to which of those two will happen, really hard to say. Um, my suspicion is that it will, it's going to be close regardless. It's going to be a very close run thing. Um, I think Sinn Féin will potentially return as the largest party in vote share. And whether that means that, I think that, I think that that will translate into a lead of one or two seats, but I, you know, a lot can change in 10 days. Mm. Um, the DUP and unionists could, you know, run a really good campaign over the next 10 days and, you know, hold everything that they've got but you have to if you're looking up on paper right now who you would have as the favorite it's got to be Sinn Féin no question well because we are uh, 10 days out uh, of polling day we we will forgive you if uh, your prediction is wrong because uh, in France actually uh, there was huge uh, movement on the final day um, and essentially uh, tactical voting got behind the uh, three big blocks so uh, yeah, uh, we we will forgive you if uh, the prediction. I think I've given myself of it. I think I've given myself enough caveats there to not look like a complete clown whenever this is revealed to be totally wrong. But you know, hey, if I'm right, I'm like Nostradamus. If I'm wrong, I can always say, well, I always said it was possible. Yeah. Well, we shall see. Um, yeah. So uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, Mr. Pangolins, it was, a, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope uh, everyone in, will get something out of this. Um, and I very much enjoyed the conversation, Julian. So, um, you know, chat to you again soon, hopefully. Yeah. And uh, thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll see you uh, the next episode, which will be about uh, the Welsh local elections. So uh, hold on tight.